equal-ish. Equalish. Kind of equal, but not really. Equalish will focus on America's framework of systemic racism and its impact on African Americans. Equalish. Our guest on Equalish is Julius Valentine Mena. Mr. Mena has a very impressive resume, but we're going to focus on his role as Supervisory Partnership Specialist at the U.S. Census Bureau. He holds a JD from the University of Baltimore School of Law, an MA from Bowie State University, and a BA from University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So welcome to the show, Mr. Mena. How are you? I'm excited to be here. Well, great, great. Let's start at the beginning. Okay. The census occurs every 10 years. Mr. Mena used to be one of the um, people that worked with the Census Bureau to help make sure that people filled out the census, understood what the census was about, and uh, to make sure we had as accurate an account of people in America as we could possibly get. But what we're going to cover today on Equalish is how the census came about and some of the things about the census that people may not be aware of and why it's so important to participate when we have our census every 10 years. Can you uh, talk a little bit about why we have a census and how the census started with our first uh, president? Yeah, so uh, so George Washington comes into play. Um, we have a brand new spanking constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, said a lot of good things, and I will say um, I'm a constitutional purist in the, in the in the sense that it was written right. It was probably just applied wrong, or by you know people who understood exactly how they wanted to apply it um, mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of building this democracy. So. Shortly after he was elected president, uh, one of the things in the Constitution was this enumeration, which means in order to properly divide the resources of this new democracy, we have to count people and know, you know, where do we put the resources based on states? How do we determine how many elected officials you need? Representation, all these things were going to be based on this count that says this is the population, this is how many they are, this is where they are. Uh, and if we're going to represent them, we need to make sure we are accurate about that. So the first census was 1790, shortly after George Washington was elected president. Um, yes. And we did not have 50 states then either. <laughs> we no, had way far fewer than 50 states. So uh, one of the things that also happened during that time was when the the southern states, the slave states, as they were called, said, wait, wait, hold up. Uh, this is not going to be fair for us if this is how you're going to divide up resources. So uh, you want to delve into that, that a little bit and talk about how we came up with some of the the things that that are uh, known on to black folks about black folks. For example, the three fifths rule. Yeah. So the, the three fifths rule is um, to this day, it is a fascinating rule because it was enacted under law. Right. You know, there's plenty of people that says a lot of the things that happened we're legal, right? So mm-hmm. we got to acknowledge that this was put into uh, um, a vote. It was voted in, and the members of that, <laughs> the enforcers of the Constitution at that time, um, who probably didn't reflect this America today, came up with this idea that, okay, as we're dividing up the resources, 
you cannot get extra points essentially for the property that you own at that time. Mm -hmm. And so they were saying, because um, the understanding even at that time was, well, for the first census, there's three categories, free white men, free white, free white men and women, other free person and slaves, right? Under that slave, it was it was essentially marking that, you know, you might need resources to take care of a slave, but technically they're under the head of household, which is the free white male. And because they're already under the free white male and resources already going to that household, it does not make sense to give, count them as full persons for the purposes of resource allocation. So they said, well, consider them three-fifths of a man. It might cost the head of household something to take care of their property, i.e. the slaves. Um, so the original idea of it was actually still based on this idea of you're a landowner, you have slaves under property, and so you'll be given some um, assistance from the federal government at three-fifths because the um, slaves were not considered people. Yes, and apparently it was a compromise, which is technically what is called the three-fifths compromise. So yeah. there was a back and forth, apparently, on who said, yes, we can count them. No, we're not going to count them. And then I guess they came up with a number in between. It's almost like bartering, apparently, that they came up with the three-fifths. 100%, yep. And it wasn't until, um, what was it, shortly after 1865, um, so eight, 1790 was the first census all the way up to 1860, um, that three-fifths compromise was still in play. And, and why that is relevant, um, because unless you're a freed person of color, you were not actually getting all the resources that should have been awarded to you as a, as a beneficiary of the Constitution, right? So you imagine all the missed opportunities, land, resources, um, voting power, mm -hmm. 1790 to 1850. And, and it's not like, no, 1870. And it's not like when 1870 hit, all of a sudden it was like, okay, you're a whole person, you have full access <laughs> right. to, to America, right? But it, but it, I think it grandfathered it ended like for purposes of resource allocation and it should have been also purposes of voting and everything else, you're a whole person, we acknowledge you and you have the right to pursuit of, you know, land liberty and pursuit of happiness, right? Like that's the promise. Right. Emancipation happened in between the 1860 and the 1870 census. Even education was supposed to be for everyone at, yep. at that point, but it was not. So we were still not equal. Yep. Even today, some of those, most of those things still aren't fairly distributed. So after 1870, when we were emancipated, how did the census impact Black folks? Yeah, so it, it, it's still, and that, so that's a catch-22. How did the implementation of the data from the census impact Black folk, right? I think mm -hmm. at base, it's the census is just a way to count people, right? right. Um, but going as far back as 1850, now that people were either free and or no longer slaves by legal definition, the undercount you all of a sudden starts to have a different impact because now you're a free landowner, you have the freedom to roam, but if you're not being counted for the purpose of the census, you don't have access to voting power, you don't have access to land, you don't have access to gain wealth, right? So the longer Black folk over time went uncounted, what that really meant was no resources were coming to Black folk, Black property, Black community, um, Black cities. And so the building of these communities was stifled 
as a result of not being counted, right? So these two things are always hand in hand. You undercount some populations, some populations are undercounted, and you can see the direct result in the depreciation of those communities. And so you can track economic loss over time. Which has been a long time. It's been over several generations that there's been equal economic loss and also uh, the political implications of not being counted. Can, can you delve into the, the politics of the census as far as who's where and how many people and this and that in the districts? Yeah, so the, the redistricting is that's, that's a whole other can of worms. So the census actually serves two purposes, right? You count for the purpose of resources and or the purpose of representation. Depending on how the representation is then divvied up, you do this thing called redistricting, right? So if the population changes somewhere, you might need more people to represent this community, right? So in the extent that there's an undercount in a community, that actually not only means you have less resources, you actually have less representation in uh, in Congress, in Senate, right? Mm-hmm. So some communities are literally watching, I don't have a congressman because we were undercounted and there's no political uh, population justification to even have that. But at the same time, you can redraw lines to almost like, because um, redistricting is controversial and it's not, it's something that's, once the census does it, redistricting is then given to the states to come up with it. So now when you have a state, you have a governor to basically now say, this is the data. Um, there's a lot of data people who basically figured out, we can redraw the lines to ensure that this state is either going to be blue or red, right? And, and it's pure math, pure data. You change the line of a county. Uh, it means that the votes from that county um, might not have as much impact as the votes in a different county or under you you add a congressional head in a, in a place where statistically it's red. And so when you actually look at how these lines are drawn, even if you know nothing about numbers and, and, and you, you, you look at states and be like, who drew these lines? It literally looks like a first, second grader just went out there and redrew. Right. But statistically, it is so specific and they they'll chop up different things, make different adjustments to the. So to the average person, it just looks like, OK, a line was redrawn. But these are so specific uh, and that's why they look as funky as they are. And they actually might change based on the sitting governor at the time because they have the power to basically have redistricting commission uh, in Maryland. Just to put that into context, this is the first time after the census that we um, we pushed for a bipartisan redistricting commission. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know what that means. They don't really understand how why that's so important. But what this basically says, it's not the blue or the red governor that's going to decide how these lines are going to be drawn. We're going to sit together and say, we're going to draw lines in, um, in a way that's in the best interest of the state. That's not how it's been done. And the fact that you might even need a bipartisan commission to oversee the process of redistricting basically tells you how much power lies in just these drawing of lines that comes from the census data. Right. It also shows you how much power the governor has versus the president. I mean, because each of the 50 states has a governor who has the power to do a whole lot of stuff Mm -hmm. outside of the federal government. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm in Virginia and our previous our governor that was uh, sitting during 2020 is no longer our governor. We've we flipped from a blue state to a red state as far as our governorship was concerned. So I'm I'm not certain. I'm sure there's some redrawing happening 
right now, but uh, it's it's a lot because what people don't understand, a lot of people don't understand is how important the impact of the census is. But uh, let me step back a minute and talk about the politics, as you were saying about representation. That was part of the, the three-fifths compromise in 1790 was about representation, where slaveholders felt like they weren't going to be properly represented yeah. in Congress and the Senate when this country's government was being formed. The three-fifths compromise, slave, slavery actually helped the slave states be what they are now because they have representation. They still tend to behave a particular way, which is anti-Black for the most part. We've seen so much of the the voting uh, rights and voting laws changing since our 2020 election. Uh, the census also has an impact if people participate. So can you talk a little bit about the 2020 census and how it overlapped the 2020 election, good, bad, or ugly? Yeah, and, and before I do, I, I want to touch a little bit about um, the, the voting element and then how the census actually was the original way to do redistricting. So imagine a time in which um, now you're no longer three-fifths, you're a whole person, but you're still a slave. What slave owners would do is they would say, okay, we want to get more political, whatever. So they would just go out and buy X amount of slaves wow. and say, for, for this census, I'm going to have a hundred people under me. Because what happened was the head of household, you didn't have to put a name down, right? For slaves, you didn't have to name them. And it wasn't until I think 1870 when the slave schedule now finally included names. So me, white males, uh, a landowner would basically say, hey, this is my land and I have 300 slaves, right? So now imagine if um, there was a benefit to having slaves for the purposes of voting power and resources. There was direct um, incentive to then go out there and get as many right before the census so you can include them in your account, mm -hmm. right? The buying and trading. And because that was basically the old form of redistricting. But um, 2020 census is historic for a lot of different reasons. For Black people specifically, and this, this is actually shocking uh, for a lot of folk, it was the first time they took off Negro. So like 2010, it was like you Black, African-American, or Negro. For the longest time, people were like, why is that still there, right? For the scholars in the room, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, I would investigate um, what these terms really mean legally, right? When you think ethnicity and race and all of that, Black, African-American, or, or, or Negro, why did it even have to be or, right? If they all meant to the same thing, then why did the form actually um, delineate those? But as of 2020, it was just, are you Black or African-American, right? So the term Negro is gone. It was also the first census in which we went online, which is also shocking. So up until 2020, you could not fill this form out online. And the only way to do it was by paper. People ask why? Well, the constitution said, for now, until the rest of history, this has to be done via paper. What they were able to argue is you can add methods, you can't take away methods. So they added phone, you can call it in, and then you can also go online and fill it out. Um, this census was historic to your point because we had 
uh, interesting representation at the time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, probably one of the most historic uh, presidents of our generation. Um, and so there was a lot at stake when we go back to the undercount. So in Maryland, shout out to our team and my old supervisor, Ron Brown, um, we actually did a really clean census campaign where we focused on um, making sure everybody gets counted, right? We looked at the data, the data, we know who's not counted, right? Like it, it's not a secret. You can go to Rome, which is a census tool where you can put in your zip code and you can see the undercount from the last census. So for every census, what, what guides the work is let's go where people are undercounted, right? In places like Baltimore City, um, it's always less than 50% of people are counted. And, and I tell people all the time in Maryland, if you put that in numbers, it amounted to about $1,800 per person over 10 years. That's 18,000. So if only 50% of the population is counted, that's a lot of money that's being missed out. And in Baltimore, you're looking at a, a substantial population that's Black, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so in Baltimore, we, we, uh, we understood the challenge, which was certain groups are undercounted. And the number one reason is they don't trust the government, right? right. They had, and I used to, you know, when I was part of the census, and in no way am I representing them now. Uh, I used to always say they have every reason not to, right? Like there's, there's enough documented um, acts from this government towards this group of people that warrants their distrust. However, comma, it's an education gap. Whether or not you trust the government, understanding how important it is to fill out the census for the purposes of ensuring resources come to your community, that's a different conversation. So I used to say, it's not, hey, trust me, I work for the government. It's you need to really understand why this data matters. And if and for everything else, they will fight you tooth and nail to get it done. This is the one form where all of a sudden it's self-response, right? Mm -hmm. Taxes, when it comes to taxes, if you don't fill it out, they will hunt you down. They will chase you down. They will do everything. If you don't fill out the census, nothing happens. Right. 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 And I tell people that's on purpose. <laughs> yeah, it is on purpose. And, and and the last census also was happening during the pandemic. Yep. And uh, also at some point, I, I think uh, our upper echelon administrative team said, OK, we can stop counting right now. <laughs> and it was like, let's just stop counting. And that was also impactful with respect to uh, getting a more accurate count. Um, could you talk about the difference as far as what is the difference between Black and African-American? Is African-American specifically a person that has one African parent and one American parent? Or is how, how, what's, what's the deal with that? Yeah, so, so that's, that's, that's where I say, like, you know, I'm not a legal scholar when it comes to race and ethnicity. However, comma... The, the, the term that was taken off Negro by yeah. um, Black's law definition, it actually meant that you had African ancestry. So it was the one that was actually attached to an African lineage, right? Slavery. Black, That's the one that was attached to slavery. Exactly. <laughs> Basically. Right? Mm -hmm. But the Black and African-American, that th those get loose depending where it goes. I think from... There's actually a time when you saw Negro and not Black, and there's a time you saw Afri uh, Black and not Negro, right? Mm. And, and then uh, there was people who lobbied for African-American. It became the one that was generally accepted in Black communities, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because for every census, you can basically 
any group of population can say, hey, that does not define me. So an interesting example is for the longest time, Mexican was a separate um, checkbox. So you could be black, white, or Mexican. Uh, the Mexican uh, commission delegation, and this is way back in the day, basically said, hey, um, one of the promises when Mexico and the U.S. were talking is that Mexicans would be viewed as citizens. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to have a separate thing. We want to be viewed as white, right? They petitioned for that. And eventually you don't long, you no longer see Mexican, but you see Hispanic or non-Hispanic, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of times that is also grouped under white, right? So now you look at the political power of being a majority um, versus this fight to define African-American, Black, or Negro, right? Like, like because it, it just, it, there's a, um, for the purposes of the forum, I don't think it, 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 the scholars are even agreed upon which one is the most definite, but I think that's on purpose once again. Yes. But for a lot of these other definitions, um, I don't think white ever changed, right? And they actually have white alone and then white including um, non-Hispanic whites, right? Like, like that term has not changed. Mm -hmm. uh, um, some of these other ethnicities or racial groups have not changed. And to your point, I think you're hinting at, a lot of people have made the argument, I can trace my lineage to X, so I'm Asian or I am, I am this, I'm Jamaican American. For a lot of black people who are either foundational black meaning that they're children of slaves mm -hmm. because of these records it was not easy for them to prove that i am directly descendant of slavery right like it's almost like all of a sudden you you just exist right right and it's, so the inability to trace back your roots is is makes it really challenging to make a distinction between um black african-american and negro for the purposes of, of um, census or legal definition yeah, and, and the older uh, enumerators, they weren't all that particular about being accurate when they were actually taking data from our people. I've seen a uh, census from 1910 for my great-grandmother when she was a child. She was probably four years old, and she had siblings and all that, so they had the household there. But they spell my, uh, my great 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 aunt dolly's name is polly her name was dolly so you know doing stuff like that it was like whatever we counted you what'd you say dolly polly whatever so um it's more difficult for us to try to find out who we are when all we have is a certain set of records to go by and we gotta you know weed through them like a needle in a haystack and see what we can find out about our people so uh, when did we actually start getting, oh, one more thing about that, talking about the Black and the Negro and African-American. Back then, we were colored. Yeah. <laughs> and on certain census forms, we were colored. And the other thing was, if you could not read or write, they had a column for whether or not you were an idiot. They called it idiocy at that point. And so the fact that you weren't even allowed to learn to read or write during slavery now puts you in the idiot category because of your lack of being able to read or write. So education plays into this thing as well. Your thoughts yeah. on that? Uh, it definitely does. And it's interesting. There was actually some times when we almost got it right. So around 1910, 
there was actually a big thing in Congress where they realized Black people were not being counted accurately. And they actually pushed for having African-American or Black or Negro enumerator census takers. So you saw this amazing increase in specifically um, African-American women. In, In the olden days, the enumerators and those are the people who count were mainly women. And so they they found that um, for some reason, everybody just responded better to women. And there was a greater accurate uh, uh, census enumeration when it was a Black woman counting Black people. <laughs> so to your point, as far back as 1910, they knew this. They knew that we actually might have to rethink the team. The challenge, though, um, the government cannot pay different races differently, right? So so what, what really meant was now you have all these women making a lot more and now they're government officials, right? This is a time when we're still grappling with, with race. Mm-hmm. Um, after a while, those jobs became the jobs everybody wanted and you saw the decline once again. So although they were like, yeah, we need to go them go count their own people. The minute there was a dollar amount attached to that job and with, 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 the few times we've seen true pay equity, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, nah, my sister should have that job. Oh, wow. And to your point, there's um, even in, in for this 2020 census, one of our campaigns, we hired people to count people in their own community because it matters who who knocks on your door, right? I, I live in Baltimore City. Um, I don't open my door to anybody. I don't, unless I know you, right? And that's, mm-hmm. and I, and I, and that's regardless of the literacy gap, but specifically around literacy, and, and you mentioned this last census, that became such a big pain point when it came to language, right? Imagine a census in which for the longest time it only had one language, right? And eventually they added Spanish, but I'm an African immigrant. Um, what they found, the oldest person in the household was also sometimes struggled with English. So any, whatever the person who's standing outside the door told them to fill out, they would fill out, mm-hmm. right? And there was this language barrier. So there was great inaccuracies, not only with literacy, but the language barrier. They were not truly addressed until 2020. And what that means is there's plenty of communities that based on literacy or language gap have been historically undercounted because it's, 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 they, they say it's self-response. So you tell us what you want us to say. Right. But if I don't understand the questions, right, if I don't understand um, the difference between race and ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you ask somebody in some of the communities that I live in, how many people are in your house right now? We've been trained to be like, it's just me. Mm-hmm. Right, right, <laughs> right. Tell you, right. And so there, there's there's not only literacy bias, um, language bias, but there's a cultural bias to asking people these questions. And economic, because... Some people live in apartments where they're receiving uh, public subsidies or whatever, and they're not supposed to have their significant other or cousin or whatever living in their household with them. So, you know, in order to maintain their livelihood and, you know, shelter, no, it's just me and my kids or it, whatever. And, yeah. And the challenge there is it's an when we go back to the education gap, Mm-hmm. The census is one of the few forms where you will not lose your housing, this and that. None of that will be jeopardized because it's 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 the minute you fill out it's anonymous, but nobody knows that and nobody believes that. Nobody believes it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So so to your point, people think of like it's two people. So there's communities in which um, they can they might even be able to expand those very benefits that they're trying to protect 
mm-hmm. if they're just accurate on this one form. But the challenge is for every other form, you could lose your benefits. But for this one form, trust us, right? And, yeah. and we already know that that's, that's a tough thing. To Who trust? Uh, nobody. I mean, when the government says trust us <laughs> to black people, yeah, that's going to be a hard one to sell. Um, what are the benefits specifically to a, to an individual? I know there is revenue set aside for communities based on the number of people in said community. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little more granular detail about what those revenues are and what they're for? So, and I had to, I had to refresh my own recollection, but so I, I, I'm, I'm granular, like to, to say as far as down as Maryland. So in Maryland, it came down to a direct dollar amount per person, right? Mm-hmm. So that's number one. And then when you go all the way down, when you think of any public benefit, so if I'm reduced lunch or um, streets, roads, all the things that we know, like somebody should fix that. Somebody should do something about that. Um, all those federal dollars that come down to states to fix the issues that we have are determined by the census data, right? Mm-hmm. So in the event that there's an undercount in a community that probably needs all these resources to fix the road, get a better library, get a better school system, mm-hmm. um, they can't do that if, if their number says, and, and I'm going to just do rough numbers, there's 10 people, but they only see five. They're only going to give enough resources for five people. Right. And the reality is there's probably 20. Mm-hmm. Right. So the state is going to basically say, and we hear it all the time, there's no money for the roads. And we're like, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. Right. We see in the county, they just got a new X, Y, Z. And the re- reason why the county is getting all these things, um, that allocated amount is like the federal will give it like as a sum to the state. Mm-hmm. If your community is undercounted, then some, the community night my next door might actually get more. So we see people getting more and it's actually 100% true because it's a set amount of states um, divvied up based on the population and the needs of the population. So that's one. To get even more granular, we watched a really hard time with, with, with COVID, right? The pandemic hit. Um, we don't feel the need for the resources until something bad happens. And we see how quickly hospitals are able to allocate, but in, in an emergency, they they gave they, let's say they give vaccines. If fifty percent of the communities counted, even federally, they can't justify the, giving out the exact amount because the census says this is how many you have. So we're going to just first give it based on the population, and we saw how many people suffered as a result. Yes, something as as, as heavy as a pandemic, right? Yes. Um, we talk about language barrier for immigrants. So in Silver Spring, which is a highly dense um, immigrant, like like there's a lot of different cosmopolitan type environments. They were able to now fund things like English as a second language, Chinese schools. You know, I'm, I'm Kenyan. So there's Swahili for populations where they're basically saying in that community, there's, there's a lot of X. Let's provide resources specific to that community, right? Give it to them in language, give it them to th- that are specific to the culture. But if we don't know that there's X amount of um, Swahili speaking people in that community, because on the census, the long form, you can put language and you will never get those very specific services given to you. So it starts with a dollar amount money coming to your community, but it's also as um, as simple as early childhood education. Right. We Everything that we actually complain about uh, as we should. 
early childhood education, once again, is also based on the count. So if you didn't count the kids or this and that, then the kids are missing out on um, pre-K resources, right? You go to certain communities, they have everything as early as early childhood, pre-K. And we know the data around, if you don't give children resources at early stage, it's going to affect them forever, right? Yeah. But if the kids are counted early, then there's actually no budget for the children in our community. There's no budget for the resources like roads. There's no budget for all these things. And the state, in the absence of money, right? So imagine a world in which the state actually spent the money as it should. Um, they mm-hmm. can't spend money they don't have. So even in a perfect budget, a perfect governor, a perfect elected official, they're limited in terms of the impact they can have if they don't count their communities accurately. That's why it's one time elected officials are out there campaigning. They're elected, but they're like, please get counted. What they're really saying, get counted so I can get the money to do the work. Exactly. I don't get the money, I'm not going to do the work. So you guys have an extra challenge with respect to making sure you get your resources because you have to count people because you're not, you can't rely on a county to help normalize that shortfall. No, and, that, and that's 100%. And it was interesting because, yeah, everything else is a county but Baltimore City. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> right. So we, <laughs> yep. we had to, we had to, our, uh, we actually hired um, a partner. I was actually hired initially as a partnership specialist just for Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. Right? And then we had a ground team just for Baltimore City. Right. And the population justified the, the need for that, but also exactly what you said. It, it's a different um, setup altogether in terms of how to count people in the city versus county. Yes. So, um, and Baltimore is one of those cities that's, you know, suffering as far as economic downturn, having um, a large population of homeless people, having uh, educational issues, K-12. I know there's work being done to the positive for that, but Overall, the resources are necessary to help you guys, uh, I guess, clean up the reputation that Baltimore is such a horrible place to be and to live. It's the safest city in America. And uh, but you hit on a really important point. Um, And I think this was also early in the census. They realized they need a better way to count transient populations of homeless people. Mm -hmm. And, And the original reason wasn't let's take care of the homeless. But what they found, a lot of veterans coming back. Mm-hmm. struggled with housing, struggled with uh, being transient, but they still needed to be counted. So there's a specific count just for homeless people that has now, and it's not part of the original census count, but it goes to exactly what you're saying. They realize cities are already struggling to count people who mm-hmm. have homes. It's a whole other challenge to count um, people experiencing homelessness. But if you don't actually include those people in the count, then that's the population that's going to tap into resources and it's going to be really impossible for cities to catch up. So how you count even the transient uh, people experiencing homelessness for a city like Baltimore, it is so important to making sure that the city gets back to normal, right? Like, especially right. like imagine if during the pandemic, um, how heavy that was for a city. So that's, that's a solid. Yeah. Not only were people homeless, I mean, they were dying and they had, they had employment issues and and all kind of things were happening. And uh, I know it impacted Baltimore 
a great deal as it impacted other uh, communities. But you guys being being an independent city, having a large uh, African-American population and already having a, a large percentage of people that are at the poverty level or below the poverty poverty level, those extra resources would be very beneficial in helping to elevate them in some way or form. So once again, the the equalishness of it all is important <laughs> when we start to look at the census and how do we get people to trust it? What is there? What's the magic thing you think that we could do or say to get people to trust the census? And I and I'm gonna speak to Maryland because I'm so, well the Philadelphia region broadly because I'm so proud of the work that we did mm-hmm. uh, in this last census campaign. One of the things they launched was a trusted voices campaign. Mm-hmm. They basically said, number one, hire people that people trust. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Like, and, and it, it might not be the federal government employees right knocking on the door. And most of the time it won't. Right. And so what we did is we tapped into local entities, right? We worked with churches, we worked with barbershops, we worked with schools, we worked with school teachers, right? Um, the 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 antidote in Baltimore, and Candy, I don't know if this is a true story, but I use it every single day when I was out there campaigning. Um, there's one census track in Baltimore City. Um, most of them were probably at a high of 60%. One census track, 100% people got counted, right? So wow. we went over there and we said, how did this happen? And they said there was an old lady mm-hmm. who went to everybody's door and said, y'all, y'all going to do this. And, and after you do it, I'll give you a cookie. And everybody respected her so much. They they don't they never questioned her right she's she's been around they know her um, you know young men pull their pants up around her and she just had that power um, wow that's the kind of example that we need to ensure people get counted because they'll trust her because anything she says has never led people astray she's mm-hmm. fed people she's been there um, so getting people who are just already the the anchors of a community. Mm-hmm to be part of the census camp, right? So we hired some non-traditional people, right? We, yes. we got rid of some of the challenges, if you, unless you had issues with money or data specifically, um, their numerators looked very different in the census, right? The people knocking on the door looked very different. Um, I think going online also built a little bit of trust because one of the things I would tell people is, if you don't want somebody knocking on your door, do it online. And if you need help, I'll help you, right? And what that did was a lot of people were like, yeah, I definitely don't want people coming to my house. Mm-hmm. So we saw an, an uptick. <laughs> yes. People filling out the form online. And I think the, the technology is going to be the thing that uh, either saves us or breaks us. I'm a, I'm a nerd, so I'm going to say it's going to save us because it's going to bring a heightened level of access. And that's once we encounter or, or overcome broadband challenges, computer in the house, because to your point, there's... That you made earlier, there's still economic things. Yes. Limited. Digital divides, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think that's going to be the, the the big difference. Hiring people in the community that people trust, um, tapping onto trusted voices, educating people around, not trust the government, but this data could really make a difference in your community. Because right? I tell people, I'm a constitutional purist. I'm a data nerd. Right. <laughs> I believe that... Um, this thing is a good thing and we need more people to understand it because the more people that understand it, then we can push back on the things that might not work in our favor, right? Yes. Like going back all the way to history, there was a reason why um, 
a free and white was always attached to landowner for legal purposes. Mm-hmm. Right. Landowning is, you know, like if you want to be a complete community, own land, own property, vote, understand your health, um, and vote. Right. Yes. Like, right. These are the things that are part of being part of the constitution mandate. But if you're not actually participating, civically engaged, then we're just going to see the same thing over and over again. We're going to see communities go up when other communities go down. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's enough history where we've been up, right? There's been plenty of black communities that have done really well. And 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 I know we're winding down, so I'm gonna just end on a positive note. There was a time in which when this came out, there was enough free other people of color, because they didn't want to say free black people, mm-hmm. to warrant a different category, right? So this as far back as 1790, there's a time in which we've been free, right? We've been landowners. We've been um, getting law degrees. There's there's a lady in 1910 got an award from the census as an enumerator. She was also the first black lawyer in Iowa. Um, her husband went to Howard University. He was also a lawyer. We need to also like look at the census as a better way to capture the history of the people that were free and winning and doing really well because that's also been hidden, right? Yes. Like the, the slave narrative sometimes overcomes this idea that there was a time when we were free, even for the purpose of the census. Yes. And that is something worth noting. And, and we're free now, right? So how do we get back to that that, that autonomy of, of um, citizenhood? Yeah. And one of the things that you stated about voting, voting is essential, not just for the presidential election. Yep. You need to vote for your local officials. You need to vote for your state officials. And 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 not paying attention to what's going on around you can easily turn you into a state where you feel like you can breathe a little bit versus what you see on TV and happening in some of these other states to becoming one of those states. A lot of people need to understand that they have more power than they think they have. And a lot of people say, I'm not going to vote. What difference does it make? It's not going to make a difference whether I vote or not. That's not true. It's going to make a difference if you vote. It's going to make a difference if you fill out your census form. And if you understand the many things that the census does, the redistricting, as you spoke of, about your voting districts, that matters. Um, Resources for infrastructure in your communities comes from how many people are using the infrastructure in your community. So if you're not counting yourself, that's saying I'm not using the roads or the water or none of that stuff. And so when water mains break and roads need to be rebuilt, bridges, et cetera, you're not counted. So you don't count. You don't exist if you don't count. And 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 and, and, it, and that's an important point. So like the, the big pot of money that came out during um, the pandemic was a small state credit business initiative, SSBCI. A lot of money went to, to basically re- put businesses back in order. Mm-hmm. Businesses were attached to the population count. So states got all this money to support local businesses, local uh, populations, but the communities that did not get counted did not get their fair share to rebuild after something like a pandemic. And a lot of times that looks like us, right? So we say, hey, we need more money in local businesses, black owned. Um, but the resources coming down the pipeline are directly related to how well we were even included in the count. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because it is everything that you're saying. It's how do we get back to um, just dignity, right? Like, how do I get back to a point where I, I can shop at a place that I feel respected? I can I can make a decent wage, um, take my kids to a good school, mm -hmm. right? And in a good college. And in the absence of the census, then the colleges are not going to get funded. The schools are not going to get funded. Um, our businesses are going to disappear. And we're always going to blame somebody and the elected officials at local level, who are, I, I argue, are probably, to your point, more important than and everybody else. Um, yeah. they, they need the money to do the work. And, and the money is going to come from how well their community is counted. And this happens every 10 years. So we get it wrong in 2020. We got to live with it for 10, 10 years. 10 years, exactly. I think that's that to me was the biggest like like light bulb like wow like it, it's that serious yeah and there's no redo yeah <laughs> no you don't get to redo it in ten years is a long time and I I, I have a, a children's book that I wrote and it's about the census and what I realized is that some of the children teenagers adolescents whatever in 2020 guess what in 2030 they're gonna be heads of household exactly and and they need to realize the importance of taking the census doing it participating voting and so uh yeah my little book is about you know taking the census at school and and you know and asking people you know would you prefer to have this or that for lunch and stuff stuff like that but it's based on you know some of the questions on the census about educational attainment housing do you live in a house single family or an apartment and all of the information that is gathered on the census form that makes all of these different silos. Uh, explain to me, hopefully, a little bit about why there are so many silos when it comes down to the census form. So there's um there's a short form and a long form, right? The short form is what's used for the purpose of, of, of the decennial census. So every 10 years, you can get a short form, and mm -hmm. that's just um, your name, your race, gender, how many people in the household. So that one is five questions. That's the easy one. The long form in which people have been traumatized by, they want to know every single thing, right? Like they like to the granular. That one is, is, is more of like a data for the purpose of data and to allow states to be better at providing the resources. So the first one is just population. The second one is, okay, now that we know, um, Julius is 38 in Baltimore City. He's a male. The second one now determines for Julius based on the longer form. And not everybody gets a long form. So the long form is random sampling. So mm -hmm. if, if you're lucky, you might never see this long form. <laughs> but, if, if, but, if, but if you win the lottery, you'll get a long form. It'll come to your house. And the long form basically will basically try to find out for your neighborhood, what is the basic concerned um, is there housing issues? Um, and they'll pull all of that from the long form. Um, but it's looking at housing characteristics and, and where that actually became really interesting for this last census. It was the first time your housing was allowed to have like LGBTQ preference. So I'm, li I'm living with my partner. So it was the first time those questions impacted um, that population, right? Mm. Prior to that, it was, you know, I'm living with um, my wife, husband, whatever. But now it was like, is it a male partner, a female partner? 
this and that. So that form gets to the, the, the true changes and it's more malleable than the short form because you can capture all the changes in a community better with the long form than with just five questions. Yes, that's It allows true. states to basically get a lot more data to then be a lot more granular with impact. Is the long form uh, the equivalent of the American Community Survey or is this just long form for the yep, census? That's 100%, yep. So the ACS survey, and you've clearly done your research, um, <laughs> that is a completely different survey altogether. It's also conducted by the census. Mm -hmm. um, that basically looks at all the trends for the community. They During the pandemic, they actually added something to the American Community Survey um, that also looked at how families are doing during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Are you eating? Are you whatever? Like, so it was it was super um, beneficial. But the ACS is a different survey, also long, very similar questions. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. One of the issues I have with the ACS is that it only goes to like maybe one out of every three hundred citizens or something like that. It's a it's it's a um, form that has one speak for many yeah. as far as the way it's structured. Has it been helpful with respect to how one person's view on what they think is happening is actually what is happening? So a lot of times, yeah, the, the between the long form um, ACS things conducted every five years, mm -hmm. the purpose is just to get more information about a community and it's a sample and and it's accurate because a lot of times they they found out when it comes to just general trends concerns of one household are most likely the concerns of another household okay. so they'll only get 25 percent of the population to do some of those forms so it'll be random and based on the people that they pick it's probably the people most likely to represent either their community their zip code um, and then based on that data, they'll extrapolate like the grander data. So it's actually more data for those forms after it all comes in. And then they spit out, generally, this is what the data is saying about the American communities, the zip codes, this age group, um, this gender, this race, right? Mm -hmm. Generally, this is what we believe is true. Yes. And some of the information, I know a lot of different... Uh, Reports come out from the Census Bureau. I get emails about them, uh, but some of those are about minority businesses. Uh, how how is that data captured? Is it in a similar fashion as the ACS, or is it something else? Because you know, if you randomly send the forms out, some people may not even be in an area where there are minority businesses. So yeah, so that that's a completely different one, and I think it's a uh, something business owners. It's a different uh, census for business owners mm -hmm. and to your point yeah that actually does look like the, the trends of minority businesses specifically so when I worked at the minority business development agency we actually looked at census data gathered by um, minority business owners I'm not too familiar with that one so I can't really say as much on how it's gathered but I do know it is still the standard okay um, businesses and the trends around minority businesses Yes. Well, I knew, I know there are different, like I said, once again, silos of data that yep. the Census Bureau takes and collects and, you know, analyzes and things like that and looks at trends from from one census to the next, from one every five years 
and all that. Then they make projections. Yes, I have done my homework, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I think that, um, you know, my, my, my point today is to educate our people about the relevance of the census and the importance of taking the census and how we are already at a disadvantage because of our race, but using our race as an excuse to not do the census is not a good thing to do. So thoughts on that one, uh, Julius, how do we get black folks to not think that their race is going to work against them? The census by law, once you fill it out, does not attribute anything to you. So regardless if you say you're black and whatever zip code, the minute you fill it out um, and they spend billions of dollars to guarantee your protection and safeguard what you say on the form, um, it's the safest form you'll ever fill out. And, and I'm no longer a government employee, so you know, <laughs> this isn't me trying to convince you something. This is mm-hmm. me speaking from a data perspective. This data is actually secure, um, mm-hmm. regardless of your race, zip code, gender, anything. And it's important specifically because of your race, gender, and zip code, right? So it's not going to be used against you. It's actually meant to benefit you. There was one bad act that was done. Um, they used the data of Japanese internment camps, of Japanese people who filled it out to, to people in internment camps. It was such a bad act that the, the, the law created safeguards specifically around race and ethnicity to prevent this form to be used for anything. An example, um, during the last administration, they try to use the form to figure out where Hispanic people who were undocumented were, it was blocked. Mm-hmm. They blocked the president from using this for ICE purposes, mm-hmm. right? Just to show you how much power that has. And in the same vein, um, I think this is something that we need to really change the understanding on the data. You don't have to trust the government per se, but this data is really important to your community. So trust that it's going to matter today and it's going to matter 10 years from now and it's going to matter um, even for um, tracking down your lineage. So every 72 years, the data is finally released, right? So it's kept secret for 72 years. It's released after 72 years because that's how they're able to track who was my granddad X amount of years ago, right? It's a really beautiful way for you to, and it's public, it's open. So anybody can go census website, try to find your lineage 72 years ago and how people fill this out. Because um, it's important that we stay not only true to our present, but our history, and then protect our future by filling out the form. One of the things I want to ask you in closing is, do you ever see the census being truly equal without us having to delineate between race? Um, no, because I think our unique identities are what makes this country what it is. And we have to reserve that, right? Like different communities that need different things. And, and um, although we all want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's important that the communities that need the greatest resources are get that. And you can't do that without a zip code. That's <laughs> um, true. Being clear about which population right now, even argue um, Race is important, but gender. So imagine a census that didn't take into account men or women, right? Mm-hmm. Women have more touch points with the healthcare community than most men do, and for every reason that they deserve, right? Right. You think that it was just blind, 
we can never get to that granular where women get the exact resources they need versus men or however you identify. And in the same vein, I think specific communities need those resources. And so, no, I, I, I think the way it was, remember I'm a constitutional purist, the way it was written, not the way it was applied, um, was really good, right? It was written to protect not only the identity of the current citizens, but as the, uh, the fabric of the democracy changes, to continue to pour resources that align with the true identity of this country. And that true identity needs to be documented today and in the future, because we are the new majority, right? So as the new majority, it's important for us to know that, not generally, but specifically, but it's also for us, it's important for us to now get the, the benefits of being part of this democracy um, that, we, that, that we deserve, so. Thank you for joining me on Equalish. Yep, thank you, thank you. You've been listening to Equalish with Dr. Trina Coleman. 